Good morning, Incarnation. Well, a couple weeks ago, um, the Bodo family went out of town for a vacation, uh, and then we missed one Sunday with you, and then last week I spent most of the week leading a church planter retreat um, for my role as canon for church planting in the Gulf Atlantic Diocese, and so I missed one Sunday, and uh, just from following the national news of the last two weeks, I missed an awful lot. Um, being away from you, we saw again another example of uh, someone uh, committing mass murder in the name of white supremacy, uh, the original sin of this nation, which we repudiate in the name of Jesus. We saw um, a mainland Chine uh, Chinese man who um, uh, actually is elderly, it's just sad to think about, enter a Taiwanese congregation and try to shoot it up. There was um, some heroic actions on the part of the people who were there that stopped that from being as tragic as, as it could have been. Um, we saw um, uh, a woman's uh, pregnancy center, much like the Phi Center, blown up because of things that are going on in this nation regarding Roe v. Wade. I, I saw missiles still being dropped on Ukraine, um, even in places where there are no military targets. And so the winds blow and the floods come and the rain still beats down, but there's a promise from God's word this morning. So will you pray with me? The Lord be with you. Father in heaven, we pray that we would be equipped by your holy word to be people, to be a church that is founded on the rock of the truth of Christ. Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we wouldn't be left to our own obedience and our own devices apart from your power. But Lord, would you convict us and would you give us the transforming power that that you're calling us to participate with in the renewal of our lives so that our lives would be, uh, Lord, like a, a mustard seed. And that the people in this church would grow in obedience and that uh, through their lives, the transformation that you desire for this world would come. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd be grateful if you grabbed a pew Bible and turned with me immediately to Matthew 7. It's page 812. And uh, in order to set our passage in context, we need to, we need to actually back up a few verses uh, to the previous section in verses 21 through 23. This section addressed the inadequacy of words without obedience, of a mere verbal profession of Christ. And on this issue, Jesus plainly taught in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, to simply refer to Jesus as Lord is not enough if we don't actually honor him as Lord with our lives. We might say uh, in chorus with James, that a verbal profession without obedience is dead. Yeah. 
James 2.19 would put it this way. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Do we want our fate on the last day to be the same as the demons who knew that Jesus was Lord? In fact, Jesus goes through this whole litany of insufficient examples. Those who prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and do many mighty works in his name, but they don't obey his teaching. And he says in verse 23 that on judgment day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So again, the emphasis on verses 21 through 23 is on the insufficiency of mere words without obedience. And as we come to our text for today in verses 24 through 27, we see that Jesus actually continues on a very similar theme. It's about the insufficiency of hearing without obedience. John Stott comments that the only difference between the paragraphs is that in the first, people offer a profession of their lips as an alternative to obedience. And in the second, a hearing with their ears. So in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus, really, he concludes his entire message on the Sermon on the Mount with a grave warning to all who were within earshot of him that it's not merely the hearers of the word that will be blessed by the Sermon on the Mount, but the doers of the word. And lest anyone should be confused on this crucial point, Jesus illustrates it with a very simple story. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, turn to your neighbor and say, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And notice, just as Abena told us, notice Jesus is not saying that the doers of the word will not face hardship in this life. That is not the promise. The promise is that their lives will stand up against the onslaught of these trials. In verse 24, it says that their house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Now turn to your neighbor and say, and does not do them. Such a person will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Now notice again that disobeying Jesus' teaching will not insulate a person from experiencing the hardships that are common to all men. Amen? The difference is what will happen to their house, to their lives. Jesus concludes, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, the principal point is that hearing without obedience is inadequate, or that a mere intellectual knowledge of God's will without a corresponding life commitment is insufficient. I remember back when I was a campus minister at FSU, I came to a point in my personal devotions in scripture where it was just really growing cold. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, you know, I was still enjoying reading the Bible uh, from like an intellectual curiosity standpoint, but I wasn't feeling the same, the same fire that I felt in my early days as a believer. And so one day I prayed to the Lord uh, and asked him why that was, why my times of scripture had grown cold. And I felt like the Lord said to me, the reason why the word is not on fire for you anymore is because you're no longer reading it 
to obey me. You're no longer reading it to obey me. And that insight cut me to my heart. So I responded, okay, well, well, Lord, as I open up your word today, give me something to obey. And at the time, I had been reading through Proverbs, and I came that day to Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11, which says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. And I mean, that text nailed me because I was definitely dealing with laziness. And you know what? Lo and behold, the mere intention to obey his word set it on fire again. Because God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Not just a place for storehouse of theological facts so that we can win arguments. What about you? When was the last time that you set aside time to meet with God and said, you know what? My life needs changing. Lord, will you give me something to obey? My life needs reformation. Will you give me truth from your God-breathed word that I might apply it? This isn't about anyone else, Lord. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord. It's about the evil and sinfulness in my own heart. Will you transform me? I tell you, brothers and sisters, that is a prayer that God is eager to answer. That's a request that God will honor. The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy once quipped that everyone thinks about changing the world. No one thinks about changing himself. Jesus' words here in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, call us back to this foundation setting obedience to his word, a call to begin with our own house, so to speak. Will you be like a wise man who hears the word and obeys and thus builds his house on the rock? Or will you be like the foolish man who hears and does not obey and builds his house on sinking sand? What are we to do with Jesus's very clear and challenging words here? Should we search for a Bible commentary that'll tell us that this is just mere hyperbole, that our our Lord doesn't really demand these things of us? In the mid-1800s, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard had this to say about the human heart and our reluctance to obey the clear teachings of Scripture. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words from the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How will I ever get on in this world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship, says Kierkegaard. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close 
And he concludes with biting sarcasm. Oh, priceless scholarship. What would we do without you? Now, I wonder, what are the blockades that we use to keep the Bible from coming too close? Perhaps some of us, you know, we do indeed use scholarship to justify opinions and positions that are clearly contrary to the plain reading of Scripture. We make unconscious decisions like, well, if so-and-so believes it, it must be okay for me to believe. That must be on the spectrum of faithfulness. It couldn't be that this scholar is just as inundated with the pressures and patterns of this world as I am. Or perhaps for others, we try to excuse our own disobedience with pointing to the failures of others, especially church leaders. Well, I know I haven't shared Christ with anyone for years, but it's hard with people like Ravi Zacharias giving Christians a bad name online. And have you listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast? Yeah, I've listened to it. But what does that have to do with you not obeying Jesus? Are the sins of Mark Driscoll a good reason to build your own house on the sand? I think one of our biggest problems when it comes to obedience is that we allow the milieu of the secular world to either inundate, intimidate or distract us, inundate too, from personal faithfulness. You know what I mean? It's almost like we view the court of public opinion like the weather channel, and we make this kind of inner vow that we'll wait on obedience until the weather is right. We will wait to show moral, moral courage until a time when slightly less courage is required. We'll wait for the world to have slightly less divergent views from the Bible on gender or sexuality or the unborn. We'll wait for the world to love it when Christians evangelize them. We'll wait for the church to build up several years of good, scandal-free behavior in the eyes of the world. Then we'll obey Jesus. Maybe some of us are actually so morally confused that we're waiting for the church to catch up we're waiting for the Bible to catch up with the world morally rather than the other way around. But brothers and sisters, we can wait all we want, but the rain will not stop falling. The floods will not stop coming, and the hurricane winds will not stop beating against our house. Sorry, John Mayer. Waiting on the world to change is not an option. How will you respond? How will you respond, Christian? How will you respond, Christian? According to Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything. Except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. In other words, to be the salt of the earth, earth will necessarily require moral Courage. And as C.S. Lewis points out, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. He says, a, you know, a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only in certain conditions. And he concludes that Pontius Pilate was merciful until it became risky. 
And I wonder about us. I wonder about us in our day. In this milieu, with our own pressures, will we show forth courage, that virtue which activates all other virtues at their testing point? Or will we shrink back? Will we abandon our saltiness at the moment of need? Now, as we allow Jesus to challenge our heart this morning from his word, I want to pause and say something about the grace of God and how it relates to these themes of courage and obedience, because some of you will say, well, you're talking a lot about obedience this morning. Doesn't that undermine that our salvation is by sheer grace through faith? And I would say, not at all. We are indeed saved by the sheer grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But even the Protestant reformers saw the inherent link between true faith and deeds of love. Have we moved on from them? In fact, there's some debate about whether it was Luther or Calvin who was the first to say, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, they affirmed James 2.17 that faith by itself, it does, if it does not have good works is dead. And if you think otherwise, may I suggest that you're reading a different Bible? Why else would the Apostle Paul, who's the primary articulator of salvation by grace through faith in the New Testament, why would he go through such great pains to warn us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says that directly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. In fact, let's turn there for a moment to our New Testament reading. From 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it's on top of page 955. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And why would Paul have to issue this warning, do not be deceived, unless there were some in his day, just as in ours, who were falsely applying the promises of the gospel to the unrepentant, to those who were mere hearers of the word and not actually doers. No, no, beloved. Here Paul is simply issuing the same kind of warning that Jesus issues in Matthew chapter 7. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words... On the last day, Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. However, and here we get to one of the most glorious buts in all of Scripture. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But, in other words, that's who some of you used to be. Some of you used to be sexually immoral, whether heterosexual or homosexual. God is an equal opportunity judge. Some of you used to be greedy. I remember once I preached at a church where it felt like there was this unspoken social contract that as long as the members gave to the church, that the pastor would never preach specifically on the sin of greed. Some of you used to be drunkards or whatever else it may have been that had a claim on these Corinthian Christians' allegiance, a claim on the lordship of their lives, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of God. Amen. In, other, in other words, not only were these Corinthians Christian, Corinthian Christians unable to outsin the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and exclude themselves from his justifying power, but they were also unable to deny in their living experience the transformational power of the Spirit of our God. Do you deny it? Do you deny it? Do you deny that God's grace can flow from the cross of Christ to any rank sinner? Do you deny that the Spirit of God can change any man or woman who puts their life at God's disposal? Notice that the work of salvation involves a transference of our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and a transference of our identity by the power of the Holy Spirit, a transformation. There's a quote that's often spoken aloud during worship services in African-American churches. It goes, I may not be who I'm going to be, but I thank God that I'm not who I used to be. I may not yet be who I'm going to be, but I thank God that I'm not who I used to be. Amen. Have you heard that before? And in fact, let's be honest. We may stumble. We will stumble because we're still weak in our flesh. It's still warring against the spirit of God that's within us. We may backslide into some old habit because we're still sinful and not yet made perfect. But we're not yet. We're not yet who we're going to be. But in choosing to build our lives on the rock, what's going on here is we're saying we will never again make peace with sin, right? And be who we used to be, amen? amen. We will never again own an identity that's rooted in Adam and not in Christ. In fact, we will never again submit to the ultimacy of any yoke. That's not the light and easy yoke of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of any foundation. That's not the word of God. We're saying, I won't go back. I can't go back to the way it used to be before your presence came and changed me. See, the thing we have to understand, brothers and sisters, the thing that we must understand about the nature of God is that he's so inherently just that he is going to judge the world. But he's so inherently merciful that according to Ezekiel 33:11, he can swear even by his own existence, as surely as I live, he says. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And in fact, isn't that the same God we still see on display through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, when he said, I would rather die that you might live. The Lord pleads with Israel in this passage, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you understand the pleading heart of God for you, beloved to turn, to repent, to be saved. And on the cross, Jesus Christ is giving a plea to the whole world to be reconciled with God, to turn from our old lives, to be reconciled with God and to live our lives upon a new foundation. This is the heart we still see on display in Matthew 7. He's still the God who takes no pleasure in saying, I never knew you. But 
would rather, he would rather welcome us forever into eternal dwellings with him. He's still the God who desires that our lives be founded upon the rock, not sinking sand. And that's why he warns us. That's why he pleads with us. In verses 21 through 23, he warned us that the final outcome of mere words without obedience, it's not going to go well. And in verses 24 through 27, he warns us of the folly of hearing without obedience. And the implications couldn't be clear. Here's the implications. To be a Christian is not simply to name Jesus as Lord. It's to live like you believe it's true. It's not merely to be hearers of the word, but doers. So as we begin to draw to a close, as we begin to draw the Sermon on the Mount series to a close, I want to challenge you this week to sit down and read the Sermon on the Mount again. Maybe read it through several times. And as you read, think prayerfully about the parts that you're most reluctant not only to hear, but to apply. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, what's the sort of social contract that I'm trying to operate under to insist that the word of God must not violate this boundary of my thoughts, this boundary of my behavior. And I end with a poem about Matthew 7, 24 through 27, written by someone in this congregation. It's called Houses Built on Rock and Sand. It's a good summary of this text. It says, those who hear the master's word Acting on the truth they've heard are truly wise within God's flock. They've built their house upon the rock. While those who hear but do not act will be compared to a fool, in fact. Their lives built on the shifting sand. This is the house of a foolish man. When the storms of life descend with floods and rain and raging wind, which house would you rather own? The one on the sand or the one on the stone?